Welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Debate Podcast, where consensus is optional, but proof of thought is required. I'm your host, Richard Yan. Today's motion is corporate bailouts and capital market rescues make sense. We all know the dominant crypto-native perspective on this topic, generally anti-intervention, both fiscally and monetarily. But it's important to hear the other side, if only to kick the tires of your own beliefs. After all, many smart people embrace a statist, big government view in how to run an economy. In this debate, we cover these topics and more. A way to think about corporate bailouts as claims on a social insurance policy with an analogy in Social Security and Medicare. How the monetary policies are worsening the wealth gap by giving a disproportionate advantage to the rich, but not to the poor. Whether FDR's intervention policies were instrumental in lifting the nation out of the Great Depression, or this was just revisionist economic history, with these policies accomplishing the opposite or having tepid effects at best. And many more. Our two knowledgeable guests are both in the crypto circle, but come from very different backgrounds. One used to be a Wall Street trader and is a finance buff. The other is a Bitcoin maximalist and an unapologetic libertarian. Be sure to also check out our previous episodes too. We feature some of the best-known thinkers in the crypto space, and it was great to have a few no-coiners on from time to time. I always appreciate their agreeing to do the show and adding perspectives to what sometimes seem like an echo chamber. It would be great to have more of them on in the future. If you would like to debate or want to nominate someone, please DM me at BlockDebate on Twitter. Please note that nothing in our podcast should be construed as financial advice. And if you enjoy the show, please don't hesitate to give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to this show. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this debate. I get involved in the conversation a bit more than I normally do. Let's dive right in. Welcome to the debate. Consensus optional, proof of thought required. I'm your host, Richard Yen. Today's motion, corporate bailouts and capital market rescues, makes sense. To my metaphorical left is Chao Wang, arguing for the motion. He agrees that corporate bailouts and capital market rescues make sense. Now, note that even though Chao generally sees merit of fiscal and monetary responses to fight economic and financial crises, he is not an advocate for what the U.S. government is undertaking in the current downturn. To my metaphorical right is Jimmy Song arguing against the motion. He disagrees that corporate bailouts and capital market rescues make sense. In fact, he has been a longtime vocal critic for such government actions. It's great to have him back on the program. He debated David Girard on Bitcoin store value status in our first episode, so make sure to check that out too. Chow and Jimmy, I'm excited to have you join the show. Welcome. Excited to be here too. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Great. Here's a bio for the two debaters. Chow Wang is an advisor and Masari, a startup aiming to create Bloomberg for the crypto markets. Previously, Chow was a quantitative trader. He ran R&D teams and helped build two trading businesses at IMC and Tower Research. Jimmy Song is a Bitcoin developer, educator, and investor. He is the author of the book Programming Bitcoin. He is currently a Bitcoin fellow at the Blockchain Capital and a lecturer at the University of Texas. He is also a Bitcoin core developer. As usual, the debate has three parts, an opening statement from both sides, starting with Chow. The second round is the body of the debate, with me directing questions to the debaters. 
Both sides are highly encouraged to follow up with their opponent after hearing answers on the other side. And of course, they're also free to respond to each other's points raised during the opening statement. The last round is audience questions selected from Twitter, and we'll end with concluding remarks from both debaters. Currently, our Twitter poll shows 59% against bailouts and market rescues, and 28% in favor of them. We'll have a post-debate poll, and whoever tips the ratio more to their side wins the debate. Okay, let's get started with the opening statement. Chow, take it away. So I guess before talking about this intervention stuff, I want to point out that macroeconomics is a very nuanced topic. Macroeconomics is a complex system. And in theory, if you have all the data in the world, you can answer all the questions that you have. But in practice, no one really has all the data. And number two, macro is not really a repeatable and controlled science experiment. So you can't go back 10 years and say, let's do something else and then expect different results. There's so many confounding variables that you cannot really isolate in a non-repeatable science experiment. So as a result of these things, I think in today's debate, I want to be really clear that this is a very nuanced topic and I don't have the right answer. But again, like Richard said, I'm not 100% in favor of what the government does, but I'm here debating Jamie today so that we as a crypto community at least knows uh, the other side of the argument, see different perspectives, so that once we actually go out and argue with people who are Bitcoin skeptics, that we know their argument, so we can argue and debate intelligently. So that's my main point today. But when it comes to the actual government intervention, I think my two main arguments, which I can explain later, are basically number one, the bailout programs that the Federal Reserve and Congress have laid out, they're not free money, they're loans, right? We're not giving free money to corporations, individuals, and small businesses. We're actually lending money to them. So that's the number one argument. And number two is that I think government intervention in and itself is not what wrecks the economy. In fact, the last time we didn't intervene immediately was 1929, and we basically went into a depression for many, many years. So both these points, we can expand a lot more later on during this debate, but this is my main two points that I want to lay out today. Okay, thank you, Chow. Jimmy, please go ahead. I'd like to start with a quote from Andrew Jackson, uh, who was uh, the president responsible for ending the second central bank of the United States. And this was his reasoning. Gentlemen, I have had men watching you for a long time, and I am convinced that you have used the funds of the bank to speculate in the breadstuffs of the country. When you won, you divided the profits among you, and when you lost, you charged it to the bank. You tell me that if I take the deposits from the bank and annul its charter, I shall ruin 10,000 families. That may be true, gentlemen, but that is your sin. Should I let you go on, you will ruin 50,000 families, and that would be my sin. You are a den of vipers and thieves. I intend to rout you out, and by the eternal God, I will rout you out. Um, I, I don't think he's really exaggerating there. Uh, what the, the system that we have currently is, is one of central banking, uh, central bank fiat money. And uh, essentially what it does is it's a, it's a racket that takes money from everybody else that owns uh, part of that money. Uh, and gives it to other people. It's it's straight up theft without any sort of consent from 
the populace whatsoever. Um, and just to give uh, some rough numbers around what's going on, in the last seven weeks, the M2 money supply, which uh, includes the uh, the money from the Federal Reserve and and then the pyramiding on top by uh, by the member banks, uh, it, it, it's uh, it, as of March first or March second, it was fifteen point six trillion. Currently, or the last data point that we have is from April 20th, and that's at $17.4 trillion. That's an 11% increase in seven weeks. Um, That's uh, almost $2 trillion that was essentially put into the economy uh, at the behest of the Federal Reserve on behalf of all all of the people that quote-unquote got these loans, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later. The uh, the fact of the matter is, this is a racket that is not limited to the United States. This is a racket that encompasses the entire world. Ever since Bretton Woods in 1944, we've essentially been running the entire world on our dollar hegemony. And it is not democratic in the least. The Fed is an independent organization and is not supposed to serve any political ends. Therefore, it is essentially an autocratic system. They, they get to do whatever they want uh, according to the mandates that Congress have, has given to them, which is uh, very vague and they can justify pretty much anything that they want. Um, so in a sense, all of these bailouts, all of this money printing, all of the things that the federal government is doing is adding to a corrupt and fragile system. And as Andrew Jackson earlier, uh, that I quote, uh, said earlier in the quote that I quoted, it's uh, it's essentially continuing the racket. It is endangering and fragilizing and uh, and creating uh, more um, badness for the entire global financial system uh, in order to keep up the racket that they have. And it's stealing from savers and it's spending on whoever the government wants. Now, That's not to say that it won't benefit some people. Clearly, it will. It will benefit, say, a lot of these zombie companies that have been in existence for a while, but they they have political connections and so on. Um, But the people that it will hurt the most will definitely be the third world country people uh, who do not get to spend the dollar first. Uh, At least we in the United States get to spend the dollar first. Uh, Instead, we're essentially exporting inflation because the dollar is the unit that everybody wants to be in because of uh, um, a credit crunch that is currently happening. Uh, Essentially, what you're doing is you're stealing from savers and distributing savers, maybe even in the third world, and distributing to uh, people that that you favor uh, in some way, shape, or form. So uh, there's a lot of deception at play because uh, the Fed and the government and everyone else that is part of this uh, quote-unquote macroeconomic industrial complex is pretending that it's actually good for everybody and that uh, that it's that you're getting something for nothing. It is nothing of the sort. You are uh, making the entire system way more fragile. You are uh, probably going to put at least several third world countries into hyperinflation. Um, and really, the only argument that I, I would accept for these bailouts being good is that it would accelerate the whole system to collapse and that Bitcoin could then take over. It is an unjust, unfair system where the rich continue to get richer and the poor get enslaved. That is a, a, a morally repugnant system, and I oppose it for those reasons. Okay, great. 
thanks for bringing the fire to me. Expect no less from you. <laughs> and Chad, I think you definitely have your hands full. But so I'll give you a choice. I can ask you the first question of round two first, or you can respond to Jimmy now. So I, I'm going to uh, quickly respond. Uh, so, you know, I think all the arguments that, that, that Jimmy put out, uh, with, uh, they have some merit, and I generally agree. But uh, over the next, you know, 45 minutes or so, I want to hear the actual evidence of those things from, from Jamie, the actual evidence of, um, you know, wealth being transferred from the rich to the poor, uh, from emerging markets to the U.S. I want to see the actual, uh, you know, data. So that's, that's my, uh, my main thing. Uh, but let's, we can start with the, the first question. Okay, perfect. Let's move on to round two. So my first question is for Chow. In crypto land, the top criticism of the recent government action is regarding the monetary response. The argument goes something like this, and maybe this echoes with what Jimmy has said already. Money printing transfers wealth to Wall Street, creates inflation, and worsens the wealth gap, elaborated below. So in terms of the money printing transferring wealth to Wall Street, QE buys assets, increasingly risky ones, from Wall Street at a premium, but banks are under no obligations of sharing that liquidity with the markets, which indeed there are signs of their reluctance in doing so. Point two, which is the inflation creation, increase in monetary supply debases the currency and reduces purchasing power. And then the third complaint is the wealth gap. Inflation of assets such as housing and stocks makes them increasingly inaccessible to Main Street. Borrowing is a rich person's game, both asset-based or income-based, which allows them to own more assets and rent them back to the poor in a new paradigm of feudalism. So what are your thoughts regarding this? Sorry, this is a bit long-winded, and I'm happy to remind you of the individual points. Uh, so this is a really good question, and you know, for each one of these three points, we can literally talk about three hours. But I want to focus on like maybe one of them first, and then we can expand uh, later. So um, when it comes to QE, you know, buying assets uh, from Wall Street at a premium, I want to question a couple of assumptions here. Uh, one is if we look at the actual breakdown of major holders of U.S. Treasuries, right, because QE really buys U.S. Treasuries and, you know, uh, mostly U.S. Treasuries and a little bit of uh, mortgage-backed securities. But if we look at the ownership breakdown of U.S. Treasuries, half of U.S. Treasuries right now is actually owned, you know, by the rest of the world, by foreign entities. So we don't have a lot of clarity into what, you know, part of uh, the foreign entities owns what. But if we focus on the other half, I think the data suggests that um, only 2% of U.S. treasuries are owned by banks. The rest are owned by things like mutual funds, uh, closed-end funds, pension funds, individuals, households, and so on and so forth. So the first data point I want to point out here is the entities that actually own the QE assets, the vast majority of them are not banks. You could argue that you know mutual funds and pension funds are part of the Wall Street system, but in reality, yes. But you know what they're really doing is they manage money for the households and individuals. So I don't necessarily agree that QE um, benefits uh, Wall Street uh, by and large. So um, that's that's number one. Sorry, yeah. if I understand you correctly, are you saying because 
the U.S. Treasuries, which are primarily assets being bought up by QE, are distributed across a large base of institutions, not just banks. Not just Wall Street banks. Yeah, exactly. Not just Wall Street banks. Therefore, the Fed buying up these assets are not disproportionately benefiting these fat cat bankers. Instead, they are benefiting the entire pie, right, which includes these money managers and pension fund managers and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. And obviously, the, the, the counter argument there is that, you know, QE benefits the, the, the asset owners, right, the, the owners of those treasuries, uh, even if they're, you know, individuals and households. And, and I generally agree. But I, I just want to question the assumption that, you know, Wall Street is the one that's being benefited here versus Main Street. So that, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, okay. Number two, uh, evidence suggests that uh, over the last 10 years, uh, the volatility in the market has been uh, depressed by the so-called Fed put, right? Um, the, you know, the, both implied vol and, and realized volatility in, in the stock market has, has, has decreased. Not just the stock market, but also the bond market, FX, and, and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, um, we also have seen a much worse price discovery uh, in the actual markets. And I think what this does is this actually destroys a pretty big portion of Wall Street's business, which is the trading business, proprietary trading business. Because trading, the trading business basically dies when it don't have volatility. So again, I don't necessarily agree that Wall Street is the one that benefits from this. Um, so that's number two. Uh, number three, buying assets at a premium. I think what QE really does, uh, at least in theory, is that it tries to depress long-term interest rate, right? Because what the Fed buys is long-term treasuries, 30-year treasuries. And what they try to do there is to depress the 30-year interest rate in order to stimulate long-term borrowing. Now, in practice, I don't know how well that works, but in, in theory, at least, what he tries to do is to stimulate this credit creation throughout the economy. So as a result of that, I think it's really Main Street that benefits from QE. So the distinction I want to make here is not Wall Street versus Main Street. It's really asset owners versus cash owners. So that's the main thing I want to point out here. Can I respond? Are you done, Chow? If you're done, then maybe Jimmy can jump in. I'll let Jimmy take it from here. Okay, so uh, first of all, like QE, yeah, they buy a lot of treasuries there, but they're also buying up a lot of mortgage-backed securities. These are these are called toxic securities for a reason. No one wants them, and the fact that they get they get dumped to the Fed by bankers. Uh, I mean, they're they're the ones that uh, own the the mortgage-backed securities that are more or less toxic. That's straight money going to them. But there's not only the quantitative easing. There are all sorts of lending facilities that the Fed makes available. This includes stuff like muti bonds and corporate bonds and things like that. I think it, it down to the triple B minus rated level, right? Like one, one level above like junk bonds, basically. And what they do is you can borrow dollars against whatever bonds you might have, reducing selling pressure. And that way you can just sort of wait it out instead of being forced to liquidate. And that's very beneficial to every Wall Street bank. Getting cash through loans uh, via the Fed, via a very generous valuation of the assets that you're getting a loan against. So 
that's happening all over the place. And it, it is Wall Street banks that are benefiting primarily through these. Yeah, it is uh, pension funds and all that. But I mean, who manages those? It's like Fidelity and uh, Goldman Sachs and all of these banks. They do a lot of the services for them. So I, it, it's definitely helping them out significantly. And you know, this is all part of the Cantillon effect is that the first spenders of the money, the newly printed money, and every dollar that the that the Fed lends out on these is is really newly printed money. I think Chow mentioned earlier that uh, these are loans, they have to pay them back. So it's not really, they're getting a lot of benefit or whatever. Um, he fails to mention that these are loans at insanely low rates, right? Like these aren't the you know loans that you get from the bank for your car at like 4% or your mortgage at three, three and a half or something like that. This is like, 0.5% or 0.7%. This is all money that they get lent to them at insanely low levels and then they relend it out to everybody else. So they and the right that they have is that if they borrow 10 million dollars, they can lend out 100 million. So you're borrowing 10 million at like 0.25%, you're lending out 100 million at like two and a half percent, you're making insane amounts of money off of a very small amount that you're liable for. So it ends up benefiting those banks hugely. And all all US dollars, all fiat money is essentially debt anyway. It's all lent money. Uh, and so any anytime that the Fed is lending more money, it's printing more money. That's how the system entirely works. His second point was about volatility decrease. And that is true. It, it's it's decreased. But at the same time, it's uh, it's increased a lot. Uh, the, the stock market has gone on an insane bull run since 2008. Um, and even right now, you're seeing that S&P 500 has largely recovered uh, from the dip of, uh, of all this stuff. And you might be like uh, a lot of people are confused. I thought the economy was doing bad. What the heck is going on? How come uh, how, how come the how can the stock market be so high? Well, Turns out that the stock market is not the economy. The stock market has a store of value premium because the U.S. dollar is such a terrible store of value. Uh, what that means is that a lot of the, the people that are rich that have access to these cheap loans, they put it into good stores of value that they have access to. And those two end up being real estate and stocks. And those have um, essentially kept up with um, more or less kept up with the uh, M2 uh, money monetary expansion of the o- over the last 60 years or so. And that uh, and that's good enough for them. And that's a way that they can store value. Um, and that that's definitely benefiting the banks because, well, they can leverage the hell out of whatever uh, positions that they're in. And they uh, and it's it's mostly been going up the last 12 years. Guess who's benefiting? I, I, I was reading about Mike Bloomberg's presidential run and how in 2008 he had something like 10 billion dollars. Um, and that and that now he's worth something like 20 billion uh, in 12 years. He somehow made 10 billion dollars. It's not like he sold, uh, you know, a hundred uh, hundred million Bloomberg terminals. That's not what he did. No, he, he leveraged his way into making all of that money. This is how the rich get richer and the poor get enslaved. Uh, if you're poor, your interest rates are probably in the credit card range, right? Like 16, 17, 25, 35%. Um, uh, whereas if you're rich, you're getting uh, interest rates at like 0.5, uh, 0.75, 1% maybe. And you can leverage the hell out of it to make a lot more money. Um, and uh, that all that is to say that the rich get richer. And it is true that they have more assets, 
But these are assets that they uh, get loans against and then leverage the hell out of them to make even more money. Whereas the poor people, they get enslaved uh, to debt and they, they continue to uh, suffer. And it gets even worse in third world countries because they have a global Cantillon effect that they have to uh, combat. And it, it's, uh, it, it's a terrible system. It's an immoral system. It's an unjust system. It's an unfair system. Okay. So... I'm happy to go ahead and ask Jimmy another question, unless Chow, you want to respond. Although there will be plenty of opportunities to respond in the next few questions as you cover them. I'll respond in the later questions. Okay, perfect. So the question next is for Jimmy, and this sort of naturally follows that line of logic. Basically, some people say that there's no problem with the rich getting richer and the poor not necessarily having the same advantages. As long as everyone has the same opportunity to fail and not get bailed out. So this question is exactly that. So when asked for a solution to financial crises, crypto natives generally give an Austrian economics answer that goes something like this. Badly run companies should be allowed to fail. The bankruptcy and liquidation proceedings should be accelerated and equity holders should just get wiped out. A counter argument here is the negative impact of employment, pensions invested in the stocks, and time it will take to rebuild a company offering similar essential services. And these would basically be the backbone of the counter argument against just letting companies fail. So what is your reaction in this whole line of logic, Jamie? Well, the line of logic assumes that these companies are going to innovate in some way after getting bailed out. And all evidence is to the contrary. When when you bail out zombie companies, they continue to be zombies. Uh, a, a good example might be some company like GE, which has been a zombie company for like the last 10 years, at least. Uh, what, what ends up happening is that you end up, uh, you know, feeding the beast, uh, fe- feeding a fat, lazy corporation that uh, that doesn't that that's not really contributing anything to society. That sucks at the teat of the Fed, um, and that that that's what you're doing. Um, if you let companies fail, then yeah, you're going to uh, the people that work for that company will no longer have jobs and things like that. But that's that's their problem. They they chose to work for that company uh, that that wasn't doing very good or, or you know, had rent seeking arrangements with the government um, through, you know, what, whatever means that they could. Um, the thing is, uh, you know, once once companies like that collapse, now you have a lot more people that are available to create new businesses. This is what uh, in Austrian economics you call creative destruction. Um, you know, when when you have uh, you know a giant company, say some somebody like GE, um, you know, release all of their resources if they go into bankruptcy. All of their uh, equipment and factories and like real estate and everything that they own now goes to the highest bidder as part of the bankruptcy proceedings. Now they get reallocated to new companies that are going to utilize them a lot better than GE ever was. And that's uh, an overall add to society. The, the thing that people tend to protest is the fact that short term that uh, those people have to suffer pain. But that's going to be the case regardless of, uh, regardless because at some point systems like that collapse, companies like that will eventually collapse unless you know you're committing to keeping them alive forever. And though you're going to have to have some sort of short-term suffering. Um, it's better to get it done with now instead of getting them more and more dependent. It's, uh, it's exactly like Andrew Jackson's quote. Like you could you could keep the racket going um, or you can 
you can let them fail and, uh, you know, have something good come out of it instead of delaying the inevitable. Okay, great. So I have some thoughts against this too, but uh, Chow, I'll let you have the first response. So Jimmy mentioned that the Fed is buying junk bonds, munis at a, at a low rate, you know, bailing out these uh, large corporations that really should be let fail. I, I, I said they're, uh, uh, they're having lending facilities where they will, uh, instead of uh, instead of just straight buying them, they will lend out dollars in exchange and take those bonds as collateral at the valuation where they were bought, not at what valuation that they would normally sell in the market because there's no liquidity in those bond markets right now. So that is partly correct. The Fed is actually buying both at insurance and in the secondary market. One thing I, I want to point out is, yes, they're buying at a very low rate, low yield, but the rate itself is not the whole story. When we look at interest rate or yield, what we really should look at is two components. It's the risk-free, quote-unquote, risk-free rate plus the credit part. The fact of the matter is the risk-free rate, which is right now the you know, Federal Reserve fund, federal funds rate, is basically at zero, right? Technically, it's between zero and uh, 0.25%. And so there is a credit component in the rate at which uh, those junk bonds are, are being bought. So, but if we look at the risk-free rate itself, we know from the experience of Europe that the moment you lower the rate, to zero or even negative, the banks will suffer, right? Deutsche Bank is the prime example. Deutsche Bank has been failing for 10 years. And the point is low interest rate or negative interest rate is actually not beneficial uh, to the banking system at all. That's one of the reasons why earlier this week, the Federal Reserve was reluctant to lower the interest rate to, to, into the negative uh, territory. That's number one. Number two, the Fed, yes, they have launched a, an alphabet soup of uh, lending facilities. And, and Jamie mentioned munis and, and junk bonds and so on. Munis, I think it will ultimately benefit individuals, um, partly because you know, there are two problems that, that the municipal bond issuers, which are you know, cities and, and counties and states, are experiencing right now. One is a decrease in revenue. And the other one is an increase in expense. But both of, both of these problems are a result of the pandemic, right? So they're actually uh, spending more money to help the medical staff, the medical infrastructure, and they receive less tax revenue uh, because there's less sales, less, less commerce. So I think the money that is being lent to these municipal bond issuers will actually ultimately flow through uh, to Main Street. And when it comes to junk bonds, uh, I think that we should look at the actual details. Like the all, that devil is always in the details. Um, the first round of um, corporate bond uh, purchase was actually targeted on uh, the so-called uh, investment grade uh, bond, corporate bonds. And investment grade are basically some of the very the, the lowest risk uh, in term lowest credit risk corporations. So. I'm totally fine with that. The second round was uh, targeting the so-called uh, falling angels, right? So the falling angels are the companies that used to be investment grade that were recently downgraded, downgraded into junk bonds. I think you cannot really say that 
you know, bailing out these companies, uh, you know, it's, it's like bailing out zombie companies. They're not zombie companies. They're doing well before the pandemic. And then they were hurt by a, you know, I, I would call it black swan event. Like, you know, the saying goes, the pandemic itself is not a black swan. It's the, the handling, the political handling of the, of the pandemic. That's the black swan. And I agree with that. So I think what, what the Fed was doing by purchasing these falling angel um, junk bonds is to provide social insurance to a black swan event. And I think that can be justified. I, I totally disagree. You should, uh, a, a lot of these bonds, even the, you know, investment grade ones have zero liquidity. There's nobody there to buy them. And this is why the Fed had to create these lending facilities because a lot of these, uh, Wall Street banks wanted to exit to cash. And, uh, you know, a lending facility essentially lets you do that. You, you, uh, get a loan from the Fed for it, and uh, and you know because there's no liquidity, no one's actually going to sell. So on a book basis, you uh, you know it keeps its value, quote unquote. But really, what they're doing is uh, you know exchanging these bonds, uh, essentially selling these bonds at a higher rate than they could get on the market, um, and and basically getting cash out of it, but doing it in this like sort of convoluted way. Also, you mentioned that, oh, negative rates would be bad for the banks. Um, here, you know, let me play the world's smallest violin. I don't care about these banks. They're, they've been sucking at the teat of the, uh, uh, of the Federal Reserve and uh, the American people and uh, worldwide, like the, the people that actually are using the money for a very long time. Most of these are bloated, completely crazy, like uh, administrative, um, uh, inefficient, like just uh, extremely uh, crazily bad companies uh, that have been kept up because of all of these bailouts. Um, for example, Citibank employs something like 50,000 people. And there's, uh, it's known that they've, uh, you know, they've merged like 200 different banks or something ridiculous. And, uh, and they still have a room somewhere full of people that take fax orders and, uh, you know, the other, and then they enter, uh, the orders into a mainframe so that, you know, they, they can keep going. And the, the, the fact that they employ such people is like just a complete, um, you know, like it, it tells you just how bad the system is run or how much of a monopoly or uh, a legalized monopoly that they essentially had as a result of all of these policies. Now, you you told you talked about the muni bonds and how that's actually like going to help people or uh, eventually filter down to benefit the people, uh, you know, because you know, these cities are not going to go bankrupt and whatever. Again, I'm going to play the world's smallest violin. I don't have any sympathy for these cities and states that are overspending their budget. I mean, if you're, if you're deficit spending by millions or in many uh, cases, billions and billions of dollars, well, that, that's kind of your fault. You, you spent more money than you got in revenue. You should suffer the consequences of that instead of having, uh, being bailed out by the Fed, uh, through the pockets of everybody that has any savings whatsoever. So in, in a sense, like all, all of these arguments for, oh, well, it'll eventually, eventually benefit you. It's, it's doubling down on a bad investment. Like, uh, uh all of these, um, 
you know, bonds, corporate bonds or whatever, I it, they they got these loans at, uh, you know, relatively cheap rates on the market. And the fact is, like the banks or pension funds or whoever is uh, left holding the bag, they want a bailout and the government is giving it to them out of our pockets. And that is unjust, unfair. And this is how the rich get richer and the poor get enslaved. So, Jimmy, I have a question. Do you think Social Security should exist? No. Okay. No. I mean, why? Like, you if you want to, if you want social security, you should save your own money. Uh, the the fact that the government forces you to save your own money to, uh, you know, eventually pay it back to you is is against the principles of liberty. If you like, there there's plenty of uh, ways in which you can save. It's basically the government saying we don't trust you to save for your own retirement so we're going to do it for you by taxing you and this this and this um, of course like it's a it's a completely insolvent system because they they use the money that they collected from the worker uh, they collect from the workers now to pay the people that uh, that are getting the benefits now there's no lockbox or anything like that there's it, it's it, it's it's a, a ponzi scheme um, that that's going to come due but i like if if you're like essentially you should be free to do what you want with your money. And um, and the fact that the government forces you to save money, uh, you know, in the particular way that they demand is is stupid. And uh, it's uh, against the principles of liberty. It, 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 and it's uh, it's evil uh, for that reason. So so let's take this one step even further. Do you think healthcare should exist? Healthcare insurance should exist. Well, I mean, depends. Uh, like, it, it, I don't think universal health. I don't think you should force everyone to have health care. Again, that, that's the government uh, telling everybody what to do and forcing everybody to buy something on the market. I don't think that's uh, that's uh, uh, that's very that's good for liberty. It's not good for personal freedom. It's basically the government forcing you to do X, Y, or Z. Now, I, I think it's perfectly fine to have health insurers out in the market that you can buy from. But it's a completely regulated market, and it's—I uh, mean, I used to work for a healthcare company, by the way. It's—it's—it's um, it's, it's a very uh, regulated market, and it's—it's uh, it's sort of like a weird um, artifact of uh, uh, of like some capital controls and uh, you know price controls that they imposed in the fifties. Uh, but uh, like at least in the U.S., uh, but like universal healthcare and things like that, it's essentially the government. Uh, taking money out of the pockets of whoever uh, of any saver to pay for um, stuff that other people uh, like that they deem favorable. I, I I suspect like one of the things that was uh, that that I thought was a really good tweet was somebody saying, "Okay, um, all of these people on the left, uh, they're they're tweeting stuff like if these protesters get COVID, then they uh, nobody should treat them. They should just die." Uh, right. Like that, that, that was sort of their attitude. And it's like, yeah, that's actually kind of the way healthcare works in, in totalitarian regimes and so on is that in order to get quote unquote free health services, you essentially have to comply with the state in order to get it. So if you're, if you're somebody that the state does not like, you're not going to get any of it. So it's not really free. It, it depends completely on your compliance and your being in the good graces of the government. And I, uh, so for that reason, I don't think free universal healthcare, first of all, it's not free. And I don't, I, I don't think it should exist in that way. I think the market should determine stuff like that.
the reason why I'm asking is all these, you know, social insurance or healthcare insurance or bailing out, you know, some corporations. These are all examples of socializing losses. So I, I just want to see. And obviously, they exist on different points on the spectrum. I wanted to see where you are on the spectrum. Yeah, I'm. I'm okay with uh, socializing uh, or ha- having insurance companies, though. I I think they take on way more risk, and um, generally, they're well, I'm, the I'm first ones about, to get I'm not bailed about out. Insurance and stuff. Companies. The insurance companies are still in the private market. What I'm talking about is whether or not this insurance should be owned and maintained by the government. Oh, absolutely not. No. So uh, because you're, you're I mean, healthcare insurance should not be part of the government. It should not be a government program. It should be completely in the private market. Yeah, of course. Um, and, you know, I mean, they, they should enforce any contracts that people sign with insurance companies and so on. But uh, the government uh, does not have any business being in that uh, in that market. They, they've been skewing the, uh, the healthcare market for ages for that reason. And, and the fact that Medicare pays, for example, a particular rate means that that's what every health insurer has to um, you know, pay in order to uh, satisfy the doctors and so on. Instead of market pricing, uh, what what you end up getting is uh, sort of arbitrary pricing. This is why, like, an MRI still costs like uh, $10,000 instead of coming down in price. If you look at something like LASIK, uh, which was like $100,000 like 20 years ago, it's, it's steadily come down in price because the market makes things more efficient. Um, whereas, uh, you know, like anything that Medicare pay, pays for has no chance of becoming efficient whatsoever because the government is in charge and there are people that will lobby the hell out of government to continue getting paid at the rate that they're getting paid. And there's no uh, no incentive for efficiency whatsoever. So generally, if you involve government in something, you're, you're going to get really bad effects out of it. And uh, generally, prices get worse. And uh, and more bailouts have to happen, and uh, you end up with a lot of bureaucrats and rent seekers uh, that leech off the system, and that's uh, that's essentially what's happened to healthcare, it's happened to education, that's happened to a lot of industries where the government puts its thumb on. So, so this boils down to the crux of my argument: is that, by the way, I'm I'm not necessarily married to Keynesian or Austrian economics. I am pro market, but the Austrian economics assumes that, or classical economics assumes that the market is efficient. I, I've been a trader for 10 years. I've, my track record shows that the market is not efficient. The market is not always rational. Most of the time it's efficient. Most of the time it's rational. But there will be occasions, maybe once in a decade, about once in a decade, the market just completely breaks down. And that usually happens during recessions. And that happens not because of some fundamental flaws with the market mechanism itself, but because of psychology, because of animal spirit, because of herd behavior, when something really bad happens, the market just stops functioning. And I think we've all observed that over the last couple months, you know, there has been so much stress within the entire, basically within the entire humanity, right? The, the moment that the virus hit us in the US, people started panic selling their stocks, their treasuries. And the moment the stock market started to crash, people start to feel poor. And when people start to feel poor, they tighten their belt and they spend less. And the result of that is a potential, and in practice, a deflation in the consumer goods, in the price of consumer goods and services. And the moment you see a deflation, the people who produce these services and goods 
their income also get hurt. Not necessarily in real terms, but in nominal terms, right? But the problem is, even if their real income has stayed the same, but their nominal income has gone down, they will feel some stress in their life. They will want to tighten their belt as well. They will want to you know, spend less money, and they will feel the panic, the stress, and they will, again, sell their own stocks. So we see a vicious circle of deflation in the system due to psychology. Due to stress, I, I don't think to... I, I don't think it's due to psychology at all. I think it's because there was a lot of malinvestment the last twelve years, uh, the last hundred years almost, and all of that malinvestment is coming home to roost. Uh, the fact is, there there's been an overproduction of goods and services that really aren't, aren't, haven't benefited anybody in the market, and uh, the the companies that get bailed out, well, they keep producing them because that's what they sell um, instead of allowing them to fail and allowing these goods uh, to not be overproduced, um, what, uh, what, what's happened is that they do get overproduced. And now there's a glut in the market of various things. And, uh, and these companies are, are, are suffering as a result. Um, now, like you, you talked about animal spirits and not enough demand and whatever. That, that's all Keynesian uh, you know, BS, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's malinvestments that, ha- that are coming home to roost whenever... Uh, you have down cycles like this. And it, it's it's not necessarily that the market is rational. The market's never really rational because not everyone knows everything. If everyone knew all of the perfect information, then, then yeah, it would be rational. But there's no way for me to know what other people are thinking, for example. And, there's, and uh, there are certain facts in the ground that I know that I have privilege to know that other people don't. Um, and that, that that's how the market works. It, there, there's nothing uh, quite as arrogant as thinking that like something is quote unquote priced in um it's it's never that way because nobody like not a single person in the entire market has perfect information and certainly not the entire market does until that happens that that that's not going to happen uh but you know with respect to this whole idea of mass psychology being the being the cause of the downfall that's not it at all it's it's all of this bad investment it's uh, throwing good money after bad it's all the bailouts it's all the deficit spending it's all the you know stupid programs that the government has been uh you know uh, throwing money at and it's all the uh, all the zombie companies that continue investing in stuff that nobody really wants that's the cause of this downturn and that's what happens with a reset every 10 years or so is that it, it may be quote unquote triggered by a black swan event or a white swan event or whatever you want to call it but it's really just uh, a part of the austrian business cycle it's uh malinvestments happen when there's a lot of credit and there's been certainly a lot of credit available the last 12 years that in turn causes malinvestment that in turn uh causes a glut in the market now you're now you're seeing credit contraction deflation all of this stuff it's just paying the piper man it's not it, it doesn't have anything to do with animal spirits or mass psychology or anything people are just doing what they think is right for them and that's based on the information that they have it's not that they're manipulated into doing something or other it's that they have a good uh good idea of the situation that's happening and that's 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 uh there that's the behavior that you should expect so i i, I reject this entire keynesian uh, line of argument uh, i wish i were as optimistic as you are about human rationality and lack of psychology i i, I just don't think that's true what i do agree with you is the mal investment but what we're debating today 
is not malinvestment over the last 10 years. What we're debating today is the government intervention during this recession. And my point is, as long as you pay back all your liabilities in good times, as long as you run not in deficit, but in surplus during good times, you can afford to do government intervention during bad times. That's what I, that's what I argue for today. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's what they're doing. First of all, they've been deficit spending for a very long time. I think the last time the U.S. had a balanced budget was like 1998 or something, uh, 1997. During the Clinton so it, era. Yeah, I, it's, been, it's been a long time since we've had anything like that. So uh, I, I don't think you can uh, you know, say with a straight face that, uh, okay, well, this is, this is from our savings. This is from our rainy day fund. This is from, uh, you know, like funds that we've saved up over a long time. That is not it at all. This is all money that's being printed in order to prop up uh, the malinvestments that they did previously. It's throwing bad money after, I mean, good money after bad. And this is additional, you know, malinvestment that's happening right now. Um, and what, what you're going to end up doing, and uh, I, I think it's fairly clear uh, just by, how the stock market is doing, um, you know, all of these companies in the S and P five hundred, many of them probably should be going bankrupt, but instead they're uh, they're propped up um, mostly because people don't have a good store of value, so they they uh, it, the money ends up finding itself into the stock market. Um, you know, they're going to continue producing goods that nobody really wants or needs, right? Like uh, I, I'm hearing uh, about how the used car market is like uh, really terrible right now because. Well, well, nobody wants to buy cars, but there's also a glut of cars. There's way too many cars out there. And, uh, you know, the manufacturers are constantly producing new cars. And uh, the the cars that were built 20 years ago are still kind of on the road. So, you know, who who do you sell to? There's no more demand. Um, this is what malinvestment looks like is you you produce a glut of stuff and that ends up uh, affecting uh you know the market that you're you're trying to you know like quote unquote rescue or whatever so i all, all of this malinve- uh, malinvestment is coming home to roost and i i don't think this uh this round of bailouts has anything to do with any sort of surplus that you've saved up over the good years uh, we've been deficit spending this whole time so there there there's no way that that applies it's it's about like throwing good money after bad and i think that's a terrible strategy it's immoral it, it it only helps the rich get richer and makes the poor poorer it's unjust unfair and that's this why i'm opposing it Okay, so I think this is a natural segue into the next question. In fact, I'm going to ask Jimmy first because this question naturally relates to what you were saying. So ethics aside, talking about practicality, if we examine historical cases of crises, during the Great Depression, the Hoover's administration took various measures seemingly in line with the crypto ethos of self-sovereignty and sound money. The government let thousands of banks fail and tried to balance the budget, which some think worsened the downturn. FDR, on the other hand, took the opposite approach. He backstopped banks with federal loans and did significant amount of deficit spending while decoupling USD from gold in the process. And this eventually jump-started the economy. So a lot of what the current regulators are doing is following FDR's playbook to prevent a depression. So how do you tie what has happened between Hoover and FDR with what you were saying about letting banks fail, don't bail out these companies, and essentially let every entity be their sovereign self. 
Yeah, um, it's a uh, it's a lot of Keynesian revisionist history that you just repeated there. Uh, almost all of what you said is completely false. First of all, Hoover did not like uh, wasn't a conservative, and he didn't try to rein in the budget and uh, you know like stuff like that. He actually overspent. He, uh, I mean, the the entire you know uh, Hoover had the Hoover Dam, right? Like that was a giant public works program as a way to quote unquote stimulate the economy. Uh, if you read Rothbard's the uh, um, you know the Great Depression um, and you know the economics of the Great Depression, you find out that actually Hoover in some ways was actually much worse than FDR in terms of state intervention into the markets. And uh, one of the things that he did, for example, was he got all of the CEOs of the major companies and convinced them not to lower the wage rates of their workers. And of course, what that what what that made happen was that it kept the uh, uh, wages uh, like artificially high and it increased employ- unemployment significantly because uh, the wage prices weren't allowed to go down to the market level. And, you know, as a result, there was a bunch of people that were unemployed. It was, it, it was idiotic in many, uh, many ways. Uh, and, you know, they, then he had to, like, spend money on public works programs and so on. FDR was completely unsuccessful in his bid to revive the economy during most of his tenure until World War Two happened. Things were getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, like to to suggest that he actually kickstarted the economy, uh, uh, only a Keynesian revisionist could really say that. I mean, like ask anybody from the Great Depression, and they'll tell you it was pretty bad. Uh, right up until you know, like uh, World War Two, you know, U.S. got involved in World War Two, then then it started getting better. So, uh, in a sense, like the the playbook that they're playing from is is a very deceitful one because. It makes it sound like you're going to win, but actually you're just like fumbling the ball and giving the ball to the other team. Uh, so it, it's uh, the the thing that did work, uh, say in like 1920, there was also like a stock market drop and so on. Um, that that was, uh, I think it was Calvin Coolidge that was in office at the time. He decided to do nothing. He didn't intervene in the market at all. And uh, as a result, it recovered in like less than six months, whereas all of the stuff that Hoover did, FDR did, it prolonged the depression for like a dozen years almost uh, until, you know, World War II, uh, getting involved in World War II. So, um, I mean, they, they've changed things around a little bit. Uh, they uh, Back then, we were on the um, gold exchange standard, so you could actually go and, you know, uh, bring like a dollar to the bank and get some amount of gold. So um, it it was harder to manipulate the monetary policy because it was so strongly tied to gold at the time. So they didn't have sort of like the levers that we do today uh, or that the Fed has today uh, with its ability to essentially export inflation and thus not suffer as much as, uh, say, like the third world countries and so on. Uh, but that, that, that's, the, uh, that's the playbook that they're playing by now. So I, I reject this entire, uh, the, the entire premise of this question that Hoover was a conservative and that FDR rescued things by spending lots of money. Neither of those things happened. Hoover uh, spent a lot of money, uh, intervened in the markets a lot. Uh, FDR did the same thing, and it didn't get better until World War II, and that's uh, that that's that's the actual history. Um, instead of like thinking FDR was this amazing uh, economics, uh, you know, person that uh, revived the economy, he did nothing of the kind. Okay, why do you think there was this revisionist economics going on? 
in education? Uh, well, I mean, that, that's very thought. easy to explain. Uh, like, basically, uh, the government always wants to spend more money. And this is uh, largely to, you know, win another term in office or whatever. Uh, but, you know, the the economists that support that are essentially Keynesians. They're, they're uh, like, and this is why every government think tank, every government economist is essentially a Keynesian. They're, they're the ones that are telling them what they want to hear. Um, this is what you would call biblically like false prophets or something like that. It's people that will say whatever the ruling party wa- wants them to say. Um, and that that's that's why uh, this quote unquote, uh, you know, Keynesian revisionist history has legs and uh, continues to be spouted by, in a lot of these history books and, uh, you know, K through 12 schools and so on, because this is what the government wants you to believe. This is essentially historical propaganda that's been uh, that that we've been uh, inundated with. There's a reason why you know Austrian economists can't get any positions in academia. It's because most of these educational institutions are you know uh, partners with the government, and you know a, at least in this la- latest round of bailouts, like uh, recipients of significant amounts of bailout money. Um, the the reason why they uh you know do that is because they know that this is what it takes to get in favor with the government and this is what uh how you get jobs as economists in government and so on so yeah it's it's pretty easy to explain just given the incentives that are out there okay interesting so this actually reminds me of uh, thomas jefferson versus alexander hamilton debate so after the revolutionary war the various states in the us owed a significant amount of debt to foreign entities. And then the federal government had a decision to make whether to assume the debt of the states and essentially creating a bank and then sort of essentially, quote unquote, bailing out these states and paying their debt on their behalf over time, therefore not letting anybody default the debt owed to the foreign entities in the meantime. And then Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton had diametrically opposing views. So Jefferson felt that he was more of a libertarian. He believed that the states should be responsible for their own finances. And if somebody defaults, let them default. Hamilton took the other approach, decided that all this debt should be nationalized. The U.S. should have extremely good credit and subsequently was able to borrow even more from foreign entities and then sort of channeled all that amount of money into building infrastructure within the country and, and sort of created this modern financial system. So the reason why I mentioned all this is that aside from the FDR slash Hoover comparison I mentioned, there seemed to be this other debate back in history that echoed the very same sentiment. And the argument against Thomas Jefferson's stance and in favor of Alexander Hamilton's thought is basically that without Alexander Hamilton's policy of nationalizing states' debt and creating this national bank, America would not have been set on this route of advanced industrialization, pushing for various infrastructural projects that ultimately have this extreme positive externality that boosted everybody's livelihood in the U.S., right? So basically- I, I completely disagree. Hold on, Jamie, let me finish, right? So I think, there, I think there's also this, uh, I hate to jump into debates, by the way. I, I enjoy hosting a lot more, but I was just going to mention, though, that there's this mass coordination problem when it comes to economic development, right? Because if you truly let everyone be their own sovereign self, 
there could be these negative externalities that, that ultimately would have these unforeseen consequences. And unfortunately, the economy is not something we can experiment with. And in the past, it just seems that we've gone down this path of effectively letting the government put together this infrastructure, letting them, quote unquote, make smart decisions that ultimately benefit everyone. And Alexander Hamilton versus Thomas Jefferson being one of the examples. Well, so I, I completely disagree for a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, that that Hamilton um, Hamilton Jefferson debate ended up with the uh, first central bank of the United States. That's how they paid off the debt uh, was by basically taking the wealth of the people through, um, you know, I- issuing more money and and so on. Um, and uh, and th- this is and I, I came back to uh, you know I started this whole uh, debate with uh, with a quote by Andrew Jackson. It took a very long time until that was corrected with Andrew Jackson. Um, you know they they had the first central bank of the United States, which I think had a twenty year charter, and then um, they uh, they had a second bank of the United States a, a couple of years after that, and uh, and Andrew Jackson basically ended. The second central bank of the United States, and what what you said was, well, you know the the uh, you know this coordination and this banking, you know that allowed all of this, uh, you know, uh, innovation and stuff in the United States. I completely disagree. That w- that was financial shenanigans to uh, get states out of debt, um, but uh, you know it, it didn't. It, it essentially took money from the people. Um, instead, uh, you know, like after Jackson, if you look at the nineteenth century, like. Like the U.S. became a complete juggernaut, uh, you know, like on the world stage. We went from essentially a backwater British colony to a world superpower in in that century. And it was largely without the aid of a central bank, you know, after Jackson ended it. Uh, And, you know, I mean, uh, Lincoln brought back the greenback and stuff like that. But uh, essentially the uh, the. Uh, this uh, like myth of, uh, you know, banking was necessary in order to coordinate all this stuff. No, people are good at coordinating things on their own. And in fact, like in a lot of these, like, uh, you know, the, the West uh, in the United States, uh, you know, there, there were like wildcat banks and stuff like that. It, it, it wasn't any sort of like central bank coordination uh, that, that, uh, that, Brought about the conquering of the West, if you will, and that that was a large part of the um, you know development technologically and otherwise uh, of the United States. So I, I mean uh, the the Jefferson um, Hamilton uh, debate, uh, I, I think, w- basically set up the U.S. on a path of central banking for. Um, something like 30 years, which I, I, I think was a big mistake and wasn't really co- corrected until Andrew Jackson. Um, but after that, I think we, we see pretty evidently uh, until like from Andrew Jackson until 1913, there was no central bank in the United States. And we did fine. In fact, we did better than fine. It was way, way better than uh, almost any other country on the entire planet. And uh, the U.S. Uh, created more things. Um, you know, uh, there, there, there was more invention, there was more economic activity, there was more uh, wealth, um, you know, throughout than uh, than an, uh, almost any other period of history on a per capita basis. So um, I, I, I completely disagree that it was, uh, you know, uh, Hamilton's central bank that uh, unlocked all of this. It was actually Jackson ending the second central bank that unlocked a lot of this. Okay. Well, in the interest of time, let's move on to a question for Chow. So some in crypto circles decry crony capitalism in that the fiscal bailouts generally favor corporations over citizens. What is your reaction to this statement? And feel free to respond to any other points that Jimmy and I raised. 
I want to first go back to a couple, quickly address a couple of points that, that uh, Jimmy raised. Number one, Jimmy draw the a causality between a lack of central banking and the fact that the United States uh, had a great century. Uh, I don't think in history you can draw that kind of causality. I'm not necessarily saying that the opposite is true. I'm just saying there's so many confounding variables. You cannot um, say one causes the other. Just because, as I said at the beginning, economics is not a repeatable science uh, experiment. And well, two, to be clear, I was responding to Richard, who 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 claimed what you said, which is that uh, you know Hamilton's like creation of the first central bank actually kicked off all of this uh, you know awesome activity and uh, the American century. I was just saying that. We didn't have a central bank and we did fine uh, and we did better than fine. It wasn't that this caused this. It's that, you know, when you when, when you took it away, it didn't change anything. And it, in fact, it, it probably did a lot better. So there's some good reason to believe that there's correlation there between a lack of a central bank and more innovation. Yeah, fair point. I, I'm saying a correlation does not necessarily mean ca- causality. And I didn't say the opposite. I didn't say that central banking did lead to uh, prosperity. I didn't say that. And my second point is, um, you said that the U.S. did not recover until the World War II. I was wondering where your source is. What source did you use? Because every source I looked at, the U.S. was actually improving from 1933 all the way till World War II. All right. So if you look at unemployment numbers, um, I think you can definitely take a look at them. All right. So percent of labor force that was unemployed as of 1931, that you would say that that's probably in the middle of the Great Depression, 15.82 percent. 1933, 24.75 percent. 1935, 19.97 percent. 1937, 14.18%. It's getting better. 1938, 18.9%. So it got worse again. 1939, 17.05%. 1940, 14.45%. 1941, it took a full decade, actually almost 12 years to recover to 1930 levels. So 1941 was 9.66%. 1930 was 8.67%. So, I mean, there's one particular metric. I'm sure I could find more with uh, with respect to others, but I, from a very practical perspective, if you don't have a job, you're you're not really doing very good. I don't I don't see how that's uh, improving since 1933 in in any way, shape, or form. It's it was way worse. Uh, like during the middle of it, like 1935 ish, uh, than you know, like even in like 1931. Um, I think we're using the same source, but drawing different uh, conclusions. Uh, from my point of view, the unemployment did really, really well, improved from 1933 all the way to uh, World War II. And so did the why, real... Why is it... I mean, it's, so it's like 14%, 18%, 19%. I mean, like 1929, it was 3%. <laughs> like to say that it recovered is is idiotic because uh, it, it, it's I'm nowhere looking near at 19, 3%. 1933 all the way to... Uh, you mentioned that. You started with 1933 all the way to World War II. Mm-hmm. And unemployment mm-hmm. improved. Real GDP improved. Not not nominal GDP. Real GDP improved. Yeah, by tiny amounts. I mean, but it's 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 not it's not, not like you recovered in any ways. And the fact it's of the matter is that, that like if you if you compare it to something like 1920, it recovered in six months. The fact that it took this long tells you that the government was probably 
suppressing the recovery in many ways. And if you read uh, Rothbard's The Great Depression, you find out that they did all sorts of stupid things in the market to, uh, you know, with, with all sorts of uh, different instruments that, and levers that they had to, uh, to, to hinder the recovery and, and uh, you know, try to keep, you know, wages at a high level so that consumers would have lots of spend. It was like Keynesian idiocy all, all throughout this thing. Uh, and and that's uh, that's I mean it, it quote unquote improved a little bit each year, but it was nowhere near like what it, what it was before, and it, it got worse uh, like it, it got way worse before it got any better, and it wasn't until World War II that it really started to recover. Um, so Richard, uh, back to your question about uh, moral hazard. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot argue for that. <laughs> unfortunately, this uh, junk bond bullshit, I, I just can't say anything about it. I, it's, it's complete bullshit. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I would say one counter-argument would be something I mentioned a little earlier. So the economy is sort of a bathtub of water. So there's the hot side and there's the cold side, but the hot side is going to affect the cold side, right? So the temperature is not going to be kept still on both extremes of the tub. So what I'm trying to get there is that, yes, there are the capitalists, but there's also the laborers. If there's definitely smart ways to bail out companies, right? And there's probably ways to do it to lessen the moral hazard impact. But ultimately the problem with not helping these companies in times of stress is that you're not just punishing the capitalists. There's a whole downstream effect associated with it. And not to mention the pensioners and other externalities. So actually, I, I want to point out one, one data point, uh, uh, which supports your view. Um, th- there was a historical high uh, number of corporate CEOs uh, that actually left uh, their job right before the pandemic. So the point there is people who would have benefited from all the buyout, all, all the shared buyback, and all, all that stuff have already benefited. So whether or not we do this government intervention, that's not going to change anything. Like th- these CEOs already got paid. The new CEOs are the ones who have to handle all this stuff. And, and the, the government intervention does not change uh, that situation. Well, no, they're going to they're gonna get paid on their stock options. So, I mean, of course, there's a moral hazard. <laughs> if, if they could pump their own stock, then they're going to do it because uh, most of these guys have a huge moral hazard and in the incentives that they have, too. Like if they uh, they're usually on the helm for somewhere around three to five years. And if they can pump the stock in those three to five years, they will. And that that's that's exactly what they're going to do. And uh, they'll take any risk in order to uh, pump the share price so that they they'll they can uh, exit with lots and lots of money. So, I in a sense, all like I don't think there are good bailouts. I, I completely disagree with this notion that oh, you can do bailouts in a good way or give it to the people that really need it. No, I mean that that's still the government picking winners and losers by some quote unquote moral standard that you might uh, like, and and it's it's just as bad as any any other. Uh, you know, uh, bailout or putting a thumb on the scales of the market uh, in, in many ways. So I, I disagree with this notion that bailouts are useful. Uh, it, it, it's essentially 
uh, putting aside the market process and trying to um, pick winners and losers. Uh, and the losers, unfortunately, are the companies that are yet to be born. And they're, they're the ones that are going to suffer the most. In, instead of entrepreneurs going out and creating new businesses, you're, um, you know, you're essentially uh, giving leverage to lots of inefficient and zombie companies to continue whatever they're doing and crush these uh, smaller startups that might uh, actually do a much better job and handle money much better. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, that's the situation that we're in. And that's why I think bailouts are terrible. Yeah. So I think there's two counter arguments there. Number one is that depending on the circumstance. So if a company is failing out of its own fault, okay, so for malpractice or maybe just excessive stock buyback, then it should suffer the, some, the consequences somehow. Um, but in the event that it's an issue of a virus, right? Take it to the extreme, a visual extreme of, let's say, an alien attack. And for whatever reason, it just affected disproportionately some industry more than others. Then it's not really the fault of the company to be operating in that space that just sort of, you know, where the, the jazz hit the fan, right? So, so that's well. So, I mean, but who like life is unfair. Why, why, why do they get like special treatment? Like, I, I mean, to say, okay, well, there was an alien invasion, so therefore you get money. I mean, like, who, who made you God? Like, like that's just the market. That's uh, like life is unfair all the time. If 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 you get hit by a bus, then you die. Uh, there's no you you don't get to go revive that person because it was unfair that the that person got hit by a bus. That's not how things work. So the second point I'm about to make is going to illustrate the first point, right? So regarding airlines, right? So there was a very nice tweet thread that I read the other day about how somebody was advocating for a bailout of the airlines because if the airline was to fail, then all these flight attendants and the pilots would get laid off. And if someone were to create a new airline, right, to sort of generate some kind of innovation and subsequently hire all this excess labor force, there are regulations in place to make sure that all these airline pilots and stewards, flight attendants to receive the proper training. And then there's all these certificates and so on and so forth that they have to get in order to be re-onboarded. And then that would mean that a mission critical industry would now be completely paralyzed and that would have ripple effect throughout the economy. And yes, a libertarian could argue, well, just lessen the regulations. And why are you putting all these hoops that people have to jump through in order to be re-onboarded as someone working in the aviation industry. Well, the unfortunate fact is that the world just doesn't just work like that, right? You can't let anybody do anything, right? Just just let anybody do anything. There needs to be laws in place. There needs to be proper trainings in place, right? And then this other argument about how, well, why did you work for an airline in the first place? Why did you not foresee these issues that could take place? Why not become, I don't know, become a software programmer or something, or just have some uh, you know, trained skill set that's completely transferable during economic crisis. It's your own fault. I don't think that argument necessarily applies very well because, unfortunately, you know, people are just predisposed to different sorts of abilities and they're, they have different kinds of circumstances. They can't foresee everything, right? So I think this goes back to Chow's point of there needs to be some kind of social net where when unfortunate events happen to people not at their own fault, some kind of bailout is necessary. That would be no, 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 no. I, I, I disagree because uh, like the the bailouts and like sort of like social safety net and stuff like that should come from your community and it should not be like in uh like force from people at the end of a gun essentially, which is which is what 
what they're doing with these bailouts. It's it's forcing everybody to contribute to a common, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, whoever needs a bailout. Okay, well, these are the people that we find worthy and government gets to be the arbiter of all of that. In traditional societies, what happened is if you were down on your luck and people saw that, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you just like you're a hard worker. It's just that you you had a string of terrible luck. Maybe aliens abducted you or whatever. Um, and you you just uh, you couldn't you know, they, they would have compassion on you and would try to help you out. That's a that's a that's what uh, what like real social safety nets are supposed to be. Instead, we have this notion that, oh, well, you know, the government can bail them out for free. That's not how it works. It's always t- money taken out of the pockets of everybody else. And that uh, that's forced, uh, you know, social virtue or something like that. Uh, and it's 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 not voluntary in the least. The social safety net is supposed to be your own community, not the government. The government is uh, like basically we've made the government the arbiter of uh, who deserves money and who doesn't, which is really stupid uh, and ha- ha- contains within it lots of moral hazards. Instead, it should be your community. And in the past, whenever you had anybody that uh, that said, hey, you know, like you're down on your luck um, here. Here's some money or here's a loan or here's something you can use my truck. You can, you know, live at my uh, place that I'm not using, whatever that that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, Instead, we have this notion that the government can print money and that essentially these people are getting bailed out and that uh, nobody needs to suffer anything, that it's uh, it's free money to these people and that uh, and that it's not really being stolen from you. Um, that that's not the right way to do things, and that that's against the principles of liberty. Uh, if, uh, if you want to bail out, you should ask. You should first of all have to ask for it from the people that you can make a good case to, instead of you know lobbying government with uh, you know officials that you know have no skin in the game. It's not their money. If it's uh, if it's like. If uh, somebody were coming to one of my relatives came to me for help, I would try to evaluate the situation and uh, maybe even lend them some money if that 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 were or give them some money if I if I thought it was a worthy cause. That's how it should be. But uh, the the system of bailouts is completely immoral. It's uh, it, it has all sorts of moral hazards. It's unjust. It's unfair. This is why I, I, I hate it. And uh, this is why I think it's uh, it's it's really stupid. Okay, so <laughs> I think there's also um, uh, this is not fully formed argument. I'm just inserting a statement here. I think that the counter argument against that would be something like scale. So if you were to just go to your community for something, then maybe the amount of assistance you would potentially get is minuscule, or maybe the sort of the kind of company you're trying to build, the type of thing that you're trying to do. Like for example, with Elon Musk trying to go to Mars, right? I mean, I, I, I certainly like if if Elon Musk went bankrupt, there's nobody that's going to really bail him out, right? Like, but uh, but that's a that's a giant company. I like companies in many ways are artificially large in this economy because of fiat money, because they have access to cheap loans, and because they can play all sorts of unfair games by uh, you know stacking the regulation uh, for in their favor and buying up smaller companies and. Uh, and you know, like underpricing their competition and all sorts of uh, all sorts of things like that. So, I mean, like in a in a more like in a more fair economic system, uh, something with more sound money, you would have smaller companies, and it wouldn't be you know like just giant fragile things that like co- collapse and then like affect 
like, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives or something. Right. So my next question actually is also related to this point. So since Jimmy has mentioned very much a distaste for the current system, it would be really interesting to hear any kind of alternative suggestion. It is often claimed that Bitcoin or decentralized finance offer up a better alternative to the current financial system. Suppose Bitcoin indeed becomes the new money. It is a unit of account, store of value, and medium of exchange. The latter perhaps made possible via Lightning Network. Describe for us how the banking system is now fundamentally different in a new world. How does this new system reduce or obviate the woes from the status quo? Well, uh, first of all, like banks are currently the distributors of newly printed money. Uh, every uh, bank can fractionally reserve money, uh, lend money, which is essentially creating new money into the economy. This is how uh, this, especially uh, via commercial banks, this is how most of the money is printed. It's not actually the Fed per se; it's Fed lending out to commercial banks, who in turn lend out to big corporations, which is where most of the money goes. Um, so first of all, that that gets eliminated. It's uh, you know, I, if you have banking at all, it's probably going to be more on the full reserve basis, and the few that are fractionally reserving, um, you know, they they go bankrupt uh, because you have bank runs and stuff like that. Um, but the nice thing about Bitcoin is that you can be your own bank, and uh, if you if you have the technical chops, and um, you know, assuming that you know better technology comes along with uh, securing your own funds and so on. Um, then you don't really need the banking system per se. You you still have like uh, you know stuff that banks uh, did in the past, like you know uh, you know loans or uh, you know loans to people. There's uh, you know maybe foreign exchange or um, uh, you know you know maybe bond issues and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, you know the the banking system as we know it runs on creating new fiat money through uh, money creation uh, and loans. So uh, I think that's the main thing that goes away. And that's uh, that that in turn means that there's no crony capitalism. There's no, uh, you know, uh, none of these bailout things. Uh, governments have to stay within their budget because no one's going to lend to them unless they show some fiscal responsibility. And even if they do get le- money lent to them, it's going to be like a seven, eight, nine percent uh, at least, uh, rather than the you know zero point two five percent that they're getting now, or even zero, I think six month treasuries are at zero almost. So I mean, like that's that's essentially what what their the um, interest rates are for them. So that that's what I think would be different. Okay, cool. By the way, I think a counter argument against that could be something like this. So Bitcoin is effectively digital gold. It has all the features of gold, but it's more divisible, easily transferable, and so on and so forth. So it's even better, right? But imagine that we're now in a world where we have all this digital gold. It's interesting you mentioned fractional reserve system, because I still think that lending and borrowing will still exist, right? And lending and borrowing by some kind of entity where the the amount being lent and borrowed are not fully backed by whatever is in reserve in that entity. That's basically fractional reserve system. And therefore, yeah, if, if that happens, those will go bankrupt because you're, you're going to have a bank run very quickly. As soon as anybody finds out, they're going to be like, OK, give me my money. And that's uh, and then they go bankrupt because they don't have uh, money to cover the fractional res- reserve. I mean, this is how banking worked in the 19th century. Uh, you know, you'd have bank runs and then these banks would go bankrupt. That's how it would work. 
Right. But what I'm saying, though, is that the introduction of Bitcoin, Bitcoin going mainstream and being adopted, wouldn't change the fact that people can still run banks and these banks would not necessarily go bankrupt as long as they still get to be bailed out, which is basically what the Fed is trying to do, right? Well, how would they get bailed out? Because the Fed can't print new money. If it's if it's based on Bitcoin, what, what are they going to do? Print Bitcoin? They can't. Oh, I see. So you're okay. So we're discussing different things now. You're talking about a world where Bitcoin has become like the only mode of or the predominant mode of value transfer. Well, you said unit of account, store of value, medium of exchange. Yeah, of course, I, that's what it means. Right, right. Yeah. I meant in the sense that it becomes a unit of account. So I guess it could be different units of account within an economy. Well, yeah, I mean, you could you could take out loans in. Okay, okay. so this is where we're talking about like sort of hyper Bitcoinization. Say they're lending out in U.S. dollars. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to borrow as many U.S. dollars and buy Bitcoin and then like what and then and then pay back in dollars as I need to based on that loan. Um, And, you know, if it's already a unit of account, a store value and a medium of exchange, then I'm going to. Bitcoin's going to do way better than uh, you know a currency that inflated 11% in the last seven weeks. So, um, I mean that that means that I'm going to make money, and that's that's essentially what how hyper Bitcoinization arrives. And then, you know, I mean banks are not going to make that much money off of uh, lending out dollars or the interest rates that they're going to demand. They're going to be high enough where people aren't going to want to uh, borrow from them. So. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable that you get to the point where if, if Bitcoin is a it is a hard sound money that that we've been talking about, that banks no longer loan out in anything else because uh, you know, like you either have to charge way too much interest, or you know, you're 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 going to lose money in some way. So I I don't I don't see how the Fed can bail them out. I mean, they can print way more money, but then that's just hyperinflation and you destroy uh, the currency that. You're printing. Okay, great. Chow, any follow-ups there? So Richard, you actually raised the interesting point that um, I, I tend to agree with, that even if Bitcoin becomes uh, this uh, global uh, store value, unit of account, uh, medium exchange, nothing prevents uh, banks from emerging in a, in a free market. Um, and nothing prevents um, fractional reserve. Nothing prevents... Uh, credit creation. And in fact, the, the free market will probably uh, cause a credit system to arise where people would borrow uh, not at uh, 100% collateral. So I think that's that's an interesting point. I mean, it might happen, but I, I think like long-term, those don't survive. I mean, like they're, they're very fragile to any sort of disruptive event, any, any type of bank run. So, I mean, they might exist for a short term, but like it works until it doesn't. And then like in the current system, um, you know, things are so fragile that they have to continuously bail out every 10 years or so. Um, but in, in a system like that, every 10 years, all those banks just kind of go away. And then like, you know, like people just learn not to trust them. So like event, like in the long run, all, all of those uh, like fractional reserve uh, loans and things like that. I mean, that might happen for the short term, but long term, I don't think they can survive. Um, that that just won't happen. Yeah. By the way, I think another angle to think about the excessive money printing is the utilization of talent in the economy, right? So if you think about resources, it's it's physical resources and then and then labor, right? And I'm talking about intellectual labor. So all the smart people in this country are going to finance or Silicon Valley. And that has a lot to do with the fact that there's cheap money. 
So the finance companies are at the spigot. And then for tech firms, there are indeed firms that have made things that are more productive, increase people's general happiness and well-being. But then there are also arguably some companies that are very popular and profitable, but do not represent a lot of progress, right? So digital drugs, social media could have extremely detrimental effects. So I think one other problem with easy money is just the incorrect direction in which the talents actually get deployed towards. And I also suspect that there is a sense of internal doubt in various talents in that particular world where they are engaging in these businesses and they seem to enjoy all the success, but ultimately ultimately, they would not necessarily admit that they're doing something super productive. So, I mean, I myself, for one, have been in Wall Street for a while and I have many, many colleagues that feel very empty for deriving the sort of profits that we do for the kind of work that we have done. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I I, I have a whole talk around this, um, you know, like uh, Bitcoin is the ultimate social justice. And I talk about exactly that, which is that, you know, like a lot of these people went into investment banking and Wall Street trading and things, uh, mostly because you have access to the early printed money. It's it's not because they happen to be very uh, interested in finance per se. It's because that's where the money is available. And um, in any uh, sort of like money uh, scheme, there's a there's a group of people that will go towards whatever is the easiest. And right now, finance is the easiest way to make lots and lots of money. Um, uh, you know, like if, if you try to like mine gold, for example, it's going to be very difficult unless you happen to be very good at geology and know all the chemical processes around gold, not to mention like all of the management around uh you know, uh, procuring uh, possible mining sites and uh, equipment, heavy equipment and things like that. Um, the fact of the matter is like there, there's a lot of people that go into the money production business, uh, which is essentially what investment banking and Wall Street is, um, instead of doing something more meaningful. In a hard money system, what ends up happening is that a lot of those people uh, go into stuff that they are really good at instead of where they happen to have a small advantage because they, they're in the right place and time. Uh, stuff like, uh, you know, like, it, you, you know, you might go and uh, build spaceships or cars or, uh, you know, new machines or whatever. Um, and even like Google and Facebook to a large degree, they, you're, you're absolutely right. They, they are kind of meaningless. I think the quote that I've heard that's, I, I think, very poignant is, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I'm ga- getting paid lots and lots of money just so I can get a few more clicks, and that—that's essentially what Google and Facebook are. All those engineers that are uh, that are working there, their their lives are all about getting just a few more clicks, and that's uh, that's horribly depressing. And I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have epidemic levels of depression, and that drug use is high, and that. Uh, people are addicted to all sorts of things like alcohol and sugar and video games and all sorts of things because they need to escape the fact that deep down inside they know that they don't really they're not really contributing anything and that they're essentially rent seekers in an economy uh, you know that's uh, that and that they're not really adding value to civilization in any way shape or form so um, yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, once you get to a hard money, a lot of that changes. Uh, people find a lot more meaning in what they do. Um, and they, they don't have to spend so much time, uh, you know, trying to store value by researching stocks and real estate and things like that. It's that they, uh, you know, put their effort into their passion and what they think is important for civilization. Um, I, I, I look forward to that world. And I, I, I think that will make 
um, not just, uh, you know, like our lives better, but the lives of everyone around the world, including third world countries, much, much better. Okay, perfect. So, Chow, last question for you. You had mentioned prior to our debate that you generally feel that government officials that understand economics might be able to do these fiscal and monetary rescues a little bit smarter, and that could work out. So outside of the U.S., what are some other countries with smart policymakers that seem to have made the right decisions in times of stress? Or what historical eras have there been in the U.S. history where governments have done the right thing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, well, number one, I don't think it's a problem of competence. It's more a problem of politics and interests. I, I, think, I think the central bankers actually know what is good and what is bad for the economy, but they're not doing what is best for the long run of the economy. What they're doing is to score wins for their elections. I think that's what they're doing, and that's the, the main problem behind uh, central banking. But in theory... I think what they do, you know, intervention during recessions and pay back, paying back all the liabilities could work. Um, I don't know too much about central banking outside of uh, the U.S. I know a little bit about Japan and Europe, but I think most, most, mostly they've done a very bad job over the last two or three decades. Um, but a good example might be China, but not in 2020. It might be China in 2008. Uh, when they had a lot of bullets, uh, a lot of ammunition uh, to raise, uh, you know, to, to pull the economy back. In fact, to drive the, the entire world's economy uh, back back on track. Um, but right now, they're sort of following a similar path of going down a lot of debt during good times. So, uh, frankly, <laughs> nowadays in 2020, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about uh, about central banking around the world. Okay, gotcha. As well you Got should it. be. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so, all right, let's move on to round three, audience questions, and then we'll have concluding remarks. So we have one question from a Twitter user named Young Business, and his question is, what do you think happens to the equity market and BTC market next? So this is not exactly related to our topic today, but... Maybe you guys just highlight an answer. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So equity markets, uh, we're talking mostly about stocks, uh, you know, S&P 500 and so on. Um, the, the pattern has been uh, for the last, um, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, actually, you could, you could go all the way back to like 1959. So here, here's some statistics that, uh, that are really interesting. Uh, 1959 M2 money supply was around $285 billion. Currently, it is around $17.4 trillion. Um, that's as of last week. It's probably closer to $18 trillion, uh, right now, uh, at least. Um, but that, uh, if you annualize that, that ends up being somewhere around 6.8%, 6.9% per year. Um, if you look at the Dow Jones Industrial Index uh, from 1959 uh, to now, guess what the percentage increase has been? It's been right around 6.8, 6 6.9%. So that suggests to me that a lot of that newly printed money ends up finding its way to the stock market. And that's because the stock market has a store value premium. Um, prior to the Federal Reserve in 1913, uh, usually uh, lot, most of these companies... Uh, first of all, paid out dividends and, uh, um, you know, uh, price to earnings ratios or price to dividend ratios were like in the single digits, right? Like you, you had to 
own a stock over nine years in order to make back the money and so on. I think that's the natural price of stocks. Uh, but because of the store value premium, because there's no good place to park your money, it ends up coming into the stock market. This is why whenever the Federal Reserve chairman even hints at you know, lowering the uh, Fed funds rate, uh, that, that ends up uh, driving stocks higher. It's not necessarily because it's quote unquote good for the economy. It's because all of those traders are front running the fact that there's going to be newly printed money coming into their, uh, in, into stocks and they're just front running it. Um, so I suspect that all of this money printing that's happening, uh, especially, uh, with, with the federal reserve and all of these lending facilities, um, you know, essentially giving, uh, liquidity to illiquid bonds and, uh, you know, like weird derivatives and so on, um, you know, that's going to find its way into the stock market in some way. And we're, we're kind of seeing that. So I suspect equities will get higher, um, even higher than the previous high in the next uh, 24 to 36 months. Uh, with respect to BTC, uh, that's a different animal. And uh, and we, we do know exactly the supply and uh, the supply is going to have in a little over nine, uh, 10 days. Um, so, uh, based on that, I, I suspect Bitcoin price will go up, uh, you know, just because there's going to be a supply shock and, um, there's going to be increased demand as more people realize, uh, you know, well, more people have access to more money, first of all, and, uh, because of the fed money printing. Uh, but also because of all of the you know different shenanigans going on with the Fed. So uh, based on that, I, I'm bullish on both markets, um, at, at least uh, over the uh, medium term. I'm definitely bullish on Bitcoin over the long term. I think the U.S. dollar maybe has like two or three more bailouts to go before it collapses. But I, I don't know. That's just my feeling. Cool, Chell. Anything to add there? I'll, uh, I'll comment on the on the long run. Uh, I think the U.S. stock market is gonna face a lost decade, uh, similar to um, uh, basically what Japan did in the late '80s and Europe in the late '90s, and then emerging market in the 2000s. So also the U.S. in the '70s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, all all these markets uh, they reached all time high during their respective decade, and they never recovered. And I think there's a fundamental reason behind uh, the, my, my, suspicion, my suspicion that the U.S. stock market will not recover is that um, I think I'm, I'm really pessimistic on, on the economy just because of the debt that we accumulated uh, in, in this recession. Uh, we're nowhere near complete yet. I think the balance sheet, the Federal Reserve balance sheet will probably get to 10 trillion, 20 trillion, and that's going to fuck up the entire economy, unfortunately. And um, number two, uh, the baby boomers will retire. Uh, they're going to be the largest sellers of the U.S. stocks over the next uh, two to five years. So no more bids and a lot of uh, selling uh, that's going to happen over the next uh, decade. So we're going to see a lost decade in, in uh, stock hubs, uh, U.S. stock markets. Uh, Bitcoin, obviously, I'm, I'm extremely bullish long term. Uh, I want to point out a couple data points recently, uh, which I found interesting. Number one, two days ago, Bitcoin, or yesterday, actually, uh, Bitcoin led. So Bitcoin went from like 7,500 to like 95. 
uh, within like 40, 48 hours. But what was interesting about this rally, which I haven't seen for a while, is that Bitcoin led the entire market. So Bitcoin actually outperformed alts. Uh, I haven't seen this in a while. And usually what that suggests to me is uh, there's new inflow into the market. So people were actually buying the spot market, like on Coinbase. And by the way, Coinbase crashed uh, yesterday. So th that's a really good sign, short-term bullish sign. Um, and I say that because, um, you know, when, when someone first learns about crypto, they're not going to buy some random, like, top 20 alt. They're going to buy Bitcoin because Bitcoin has the best brand. Um, so... That's why I think it was new uh, inflow into into Bitcoin. So I I generally feel pretty bullish short term. Obviously, I don't. I'm not gonna trade uh, in the short term. I just hold uh, for the very long term. Okay, great. Glad to find a point of agreement between you guys. Well, that is our debate. Can you provide your concluding remarks, starting with Jimmy? I, uh, I, I think I've made my case pretty clear, which is that central banking is an anathema. I, 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 re I really am a libertarian. I think we should end the Fed. We should audit the Fed. We should do lots of things that, uh, you know, make this moral hazard go away and uh, allow the market to operate in a more sane way instead of the crony capitalism that we're subject to. I think uh, bailouts are immoral. Um, they're unfair. The rich continue to get richer as a result. The poor continue to get poorer as a result. I think, uh, you know, taking, uh, you know, stopping this money printing and, uh, you know, I mean, Perhaps there's an argument to be made that, you know, accelerating the money printing so that the dollar will collapse faster is a good thing. I don't take that view. I personally think it would be better if, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, if we had a smoother transition over to Bitcoin rather than a, a, a complete collapse of the dollar system as a result of uh, way too much money printing. But that's, uh, uh, I, I think I've made the case that, you know, bailouts are bad central banks are bad there's a lot of moral hazards that uh and that you know bitcoin would bring a lot more fiscal sanity and uh and that's what i'm hoping for in the future okay great go ahead chow with your concluding remark so um so there's this uh, interesting concept in, in economics called uh the production function um what it is is uh, what it says is that the productivity level is a function of you know generally three things: labor, capital, and technology. And empirically, if you study a bunch of uh, you know economies over the last century, empirically, what happens is the moment you overuse one of the three uh, factors, the general level of productivity actually decreases. And what we've done over the last at least last decade in the U.S. and probably two or three dec decades in Japan and Europe, is that we have overused capital and not enough labor and technology. And I think this is very, very bad for the long-run productivity increase. However, I think government intervention during recessions can work. Um, we have to... The key is to pay back all these liabilities that we accumulate during the recessions and not overuse capital during the good times. That's the only condition for which uh, government intervention can work in the long run. Okay, great. Thank you for your insights, Chow and Jimmy, especially Chow, for braving the show and arguing in what seems like an unpopular, contrarian, and not to mention angry opinion on Main Street and in crypto circles. 
I'll tell you, many were eager to debate in an anti-government position, while it was much harder to land someone knowledgeable and willing to argue the opposite side. And thank you for reinforcing the crypto ethos, Jimmy. How can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Medium, uh, GitHub, and Substack at Jimmy Song. Um, on Substack, that's my newsletter. You can subscribe to it. I have a, a technical newsletter that I give out every Monday morning. Um, I can. I'm also available on YouTube. Uh, Off Chain with Jimmy Song is the name of my channel. Uh, I have a couple of books on Amazon. Uh, uh, programming Bitcoin, which is more for programmers, and the Little Bitcoin book, which is more for non-programmers. Uh, you know, any of your no-coiner or pre-coiner friends would uh, uh, would be able to understand what's in it and uh, get a much better idea of Bitcoin afterwards. Um, yeah, th- those are it. Uh, I, I think. Yeah, there's probably more, but uh, sorry. Okay, cool. How about you, Chow? Uh, you can definitely find me on Twitter, uh, QWQIAO. Uh, spend a lot of time on Twitter, although uh, generally there's not a lot of nuance on Twitter. But uh, I, read, I write long form uh, for Masari. Uh, so you can go on masari.io and subscribe to our newsletter. And uh, I generally write uh, once per week. Okay, great. Well, thank you. So listeners, we would love to hear from you and to have you join the debate via Twitter. Definitely vote in the post-debate poll. Also, feel free to leave your comments and say hi. We look forward to seeing you in future episodes of the Blockchain Debate Podcast. Consensus optional, proof of thought required. Thank you, guys. Goodbye. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Jamie. Goodbye. Thanks again to Chow and Jimmy for coming on the show. Here are my thoughts as I reflect upon the debate. Bailouts may be necessary evil to combat inevitable downturns in cycles of economic development, especially those caused by an act of God, such as the coronavirus pandemic. However, frequent acts of socializing losses via colossal money printing are unsustainable. At some point, the status of U.S. dollars will be upended as holders head for the exit, perhaps into a digital store of value. The pro-establishment views from defenders of governmental interventions are generally held by those in the system or having been in the system. These folks have historically benefited from the way things work in the system and have formed their body of knowledge by studying the inner workings of such a system. I fall into this category by nature of my previous career on Wall Street. I think acknowledgement of such entrenched biases helps one see things more clearly when critiquing the system. There was another depression in early 1920s that was alluded to in the debate, where unemployment hit double digits that supposedly saw little governmental rescue and ended quickly, presumably as a result of the lack of intervention. I can't vouch for the causality for not having fully studied this history, but this could be something interesting for the audience to look into. An exercise for the reader, if you will. Anyway, what was your takeaway from the debate? Don't forget to vote in our post-debate Twitter poll. This will be live for a few days after the release of the episode. And feel free to say hi or post feedback for our show on Twitter. If you like the show, don't hesitate to give us 5 stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to this. And be sure to check out our other episodes with a variety of debate topics. Bitcoin store value status the legitimacy of smart contracts, DeFi, 
POW versus POS, and so on. Thanks for joining us on the debate today. I'm your host, Richard Yan, and my Twitter is genso09, G-E-N-T-S-O-09. Our show's Twitter is Block Debate. See you at our next debate.